0: There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great
1: lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people, guaranteed.
2: Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And today I've got the guy that The Rock used to call Hermy. Yeah, you'll find out why. Just one of the great stories that Kevin Kelly is sharing here on Talk is Jericho. Former WWE announcer, current New Japan pro wrestling announcer. He's talking all about his run at WWE, including his uh, initial audition with Jim Ross. His first face-to-face meeting with Vince McMahon, working closely with Gorilla Monsoon, and Kevin was at Brian Pillman's house the night Stone Cold Steve Austin came knocking and gunshots rang out. Kevin shares what happened behind the scenes with that USA Network uh, angle and what he actually knew about it going in. There was a lot of controversy at the time. Kevin was also there for the Monday Night Wars and remembers exactly what happened that started to turn the tides in WWE's favor and of course Kevin is going to be talking all about announcing for New Japan Pro Wrestling a lot about the company the culture the New Japan style how he ended up in Japan in the first place what he thinks of Don Callis a great conversation with Kevin Kelly starting now on Talk is Jericho alright so um, it's been a long time since I saw you last Kevin Kelly oh. I saw you the other day at the uh, press conference created quite here a scene in Tokyo a little bit of a scene I'm very proud of you yeah um, but before that, maybe 12 years, 13 years? I
3: left WWE in 2003.
2: Good enough. Really? So, yeah. Jeez, man. Yeah. It's pretty rare like when you, when you see a guy like yourself and then Don Callis. You guys are doing a great job commentating for New Japan. And Don's the same. Been in the business since like 90 and then had disappeared for a while and came back. Did you stay in the business all the way through from 2003 to now? Pretty much.
3: After I left WWE, I needed to get a real job because... Mm-hmm. Opportunities in the industry. There weren't any anymore. Right, right, right You know, right. like I for I got let go. I came home I called Jeff Jarrett. Okay, and Jeff said I'd love to have you. I don't have any money,
2: right? <laughs> um,
3: but we'll see if anything changes and nothing ever changed. Mm-hmm. So um, Was just banging out resumes just for voiceover work for acting for sports for anything getting nowhere and then I tweaked my resume wrestling is sales and I knew I could sell because I'd been in wrestling. Right. So, I was fine with getting a sales job. So the same resume I had been sending out for 11 months and had gotten no interviews or nothing. I changed all the wording to sales. I got 5 interviews in a week. Wow. Yeah. So I think I'm going to be a salesman, honey.
2: Yes. <laughs> but there's that stigma against wrestling, right? Like you said, it's either at the time it's WWE or TNA and if yep, then you're done. That's, That's it. it those are your options and
3: and there was no uh, streaming services so company there was not a high spots wrestling Mm -hmm. there was nobody that had their own uh, you know whether it was Twitch or whatever app they were using Fight TV didn't exist so that the avenues were limited but it was great because it I learned sales and I learned how to sell and selling made me a better broadcaster Mm -hmm. because I got into radio sales selling radio airtime Mm -hmm. and I would pull up to a business with a business card in my hand and I would think in my mind like a creative pitch I'd walk in and I would say hey here's my business card I'm from WSBG down the street sitting in the parking lot looking at your sign and I came up with an idea and I would pitch him like an open to a show mm-hmm. it was the same thing I'd done in wrestling a thousand times mm. and I would get them interested mm. and that was how I I didn't sell the numbers I didn't sell reach and all that frequency no I re, I sold emotion Mm. Which is what we do in wrestling. Same well, like thing. Like you
2: said, especially as a commentator, because it's so important. And I've talked to Don about this, and Mark Madden, and a few other guys. Mm. Like, what's the secret to being a good commentator? What's What's your job when you sit down behind the desk at the beginning of a show?
3: Play by play guy is to uh, keep the boat going straight mm. and always putting the emphasis on the ring. Give every match a reason for being in the ring. And making sure that you're telling that story all the way through. Mm. Always getting back to the first thing that I said while they're circling before they lock up. This is why this match is happening. I Mm. learned that from Jim Ross. Mm. Give every match a reason for being in the ring before they lock up.
2: Did you commentate with Jim?
3: Uh, He was part of my audition, actually. Tell us about Uh, it. So I get an audition through Billy Gunn. He and I were friends from Florida. We broke in together. They were coming down for a run of house shows when he was still in the smoking guns. Hey, if they need a local ring announcer, I'm always available.
2: Is that what you were doing, local ring announcer? Yeah, I lived in
3: Florida at the time, and so he and I were always buddies. He said, I'll check. I'll find out. So I got, coincidentally, got an audition with WCW at the time. Hmm. So those MGM tapings where they would bring all the tourists in? Yeah. I was the guy that was behind the camera telling them when to cheer and when to boo. What year was that? Ninety-five.
2: Oh my, I was there in 96. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like you said, they would, they would put like a thumbs up,
3: make yep. sure you cheer, thumbs down, make sure you boo. I was getting the disco sucks chant, which was actually really easy for, <laughs> for disco. Um, even the international fans who had never seen wrestling before hated him. And I. it's like they knew him.
2: It's just the way, it, yeah, you yeah. just get the air about him. So uh, what would you have to do? You'd stand behind the camera and do what?
3: Yeah, just y- hold up a sign that said, you know, I'm giving the thumbs up, you know, or hold up a sign or whatever. I'd lead the the clap on the comeback you know it was fun
2: so you weren't actually working for WCW no, you were working it, more for universal it
3: was of. a it was a it was a uh, it was an audition through them okay. and i talked with eric and i talked with tony schiavone and they didn't have much interest but anyway while i was there billy Gunn paged me that's how long ago this was i had my pager <laughs> i go to the payphone i call him i'm in between shows hey man what's up you need to call bruce prichard right now what yeah they want to bring you up i'm thinking immediately oh good ring announcing no they want to bring you up for an audition hmm. To ring an No. Announcer. Hmm. Okay. He gives me the number. I call Bruce. Kevin, what are you doing? I'm in between shows at WCW. You haven't signed a contract, have you? No. They haven't offered one. Oh, okay. How are the shows? Kind of the shits. (laughs) All right, good. Well, we want to bring you up for the audition. So I did. And uh, uh, Jim Ross was the guy who was the uh, heel wrestler when I did the interviews. He was wrestling Shawn Michaels at MSG. And then we sat down and did commentary together. And I thought I did terrible. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh. Um, uh, It was Bruce and a woman from HR and Kevin Dunn. They were the three person panel. So I get done with the audition. I open up the door and there's the woman from HR. She hands me a Monday Night Raw t-shirt. I'm like, oh, this is the consolation prize. In the car, (laughs) back to Newark, and the driver gets a call. Uh, And he says, hey, they want you back. Okay, so he U-turns on 95 and we go back up to, to the office. And they said, uh, yeah, we had everybody here today and we decided we want you to be the one to meet Vince. Sweet. So I'm upstairs in the conference room waiting to meet Vince, nervous, don't know what I'm gonna say. I have no idea what I said, Chris. I probably threw up on him. (laughs) I have no idea. And somehow I got the job.
2: Such an intimidating guy oh, when you first meet him, right? God, yeah. Was it in his office, too? Like in It was the in of- a
3: little conference room down the hall. And I'm scrambling, trying to, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And this was right after uh, and Hall had just left. Mm. Raw Magazine sitting there. I'm flipping through, flipping through. And there was a line about loyalty. So I talked about loyalty in there. And I said, like, hey, whatever happens, I will always be loyal to you. Mm-hmm. And I always was.
1: Yeah.
2: So-, yeah. So, so you start off doing commentary on... Yes, he did.
3: syndicated shows, right? International syndicated. Worked with Gorilla Monsoon a lot. Worked a little bit with Raven. Tell, what, 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 tell about Gorilla. What was he like? Monsoon was great. It, everybody at the TV studio loved him. He was not the same though when I met him because uh, Joey, when his son Joey Morella passed away, he was never the same after yeah, that. Right? Everybody yeah, everybody said, "Oh, if you would have known Gino back in the day, God, uh-huh. he was." You know, so he was a little, but he still had that wit and that just sarcastic biting nature but he was super nice mm. and uh it was great we were actually i had to tell him he didn't know this we were actually related by marriage really my uh great uncle married his sister-in-law <laughs> so uh, so
2: was was he like um still announcing at that time in 95
3: just a little bit just on the syndicates he would drive up once a week from jersey He would go into Kevin Dunn's office, they would talk about gambling, and
2: then he would come downstairs and do voiceovers and then go home. Because I think he was one of those guys like Skoland and a couple of the guys that was... Wasn't that kind of the the, the story that Vince's dad, uh, when he bought the company, or when Vince Jr. bought the company, that he had to take care of these other guys that were investors at the time? Right. Right. And and, uh, he was... Monsoon
3: was uh, part of the capital Wrestling in Washington. Yes, right. So he was he was part of the fabric of the company and mm. was never going to go anywhere. I had a job for life. And there were a few guys like that. Those the older class when you came in, a lot of those guys were starting to be gone. But that older class of road agents, I was like, why are they all still, still in, here? Jack Lanza, Lanza was really good. I think Slaughter Sergeant Slaughter might Slaughter have been was, there. The one I always questioned was Strongbow. Like mm. Strongbow didn't do anything, mm-hmm. and. But he still had a job. So it was just always in the back of my mind. I was like, this must be one of those legacy guys that right, had to right, stick right. around.
2: Vince was, was loyal to all those guys. He was loyal to a,
3: to everybody. There was a, a story I've told before. Um, Perfect and I worked together a lot. And we were in Knoxville for TV. So we get in the rental car, drive to the building, and he said, oh man, I went and saw Mr. Fuji this morning. Oh my God, Fuji lived in Knoxville. Yeah. I said, what happened? He said, oh, he's in bad shape. He's..." Bad health. He can't walk. He's tearing tickets at a movie theater. It breaks my heart. We get to the building. The first person we see is Dave Hebner. He says, "Hey, Heb, I saw Fuji today." He says, oh, what? Tells me. Tells him the same story. When's the production meeting? uh Twenty minutes. Well, come, let's go talk to Vince. Two of them went to Vince's office. Production meeting happens. Finishes. Then I see Perfect at lunch. He said, "You're not going to believe this, Kevin." I went in the office, told Vince the same story I told you. Vince. Got ten grand cash, put it in an envelope, and said, "Take this to Fuji."
2: Oh wow! Nobody ever knew. That's cool. And that's the type of guy that he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People don't know that about right. him. You know, right? Even even when we're here in Japan doing this uh, Tokyo Dome show, I called him as soon as the deal was done. He was so like, like I say he was excited about it, but he was excited about it. He's yeah. like, This is that's great. He understands that it's good for the business, good for me, and good for him. Right. You know, it's like, like a lot of people think he's like this fire breathing tyrant but that's not the case. No, in a lot of he's, cases, you know. I always had a really good relationship with him. Mm-hmm. I never had a cross
3: word with him. You know the reputation that he always screams at the announcers in your ear in your ear yeah. while you're sitting there doing commentary live Sunday night heat. I know, I I did a few raw episodes live and then they wanted to get JR and the King as a solo team and they eventually put myself Michael Cole and JR as a three man team on the first hour.
2: Really? Yeah. And then you would leave after the first hour? After the
3: first hour, then Lawler would come out and because at the time for ratings, they were trying to do WWF Raw from right. nine to ten. Yes. And Raw's
2: war from ten they to ten. They would 5. always like have like a closing credit at yep. the end of the first hour and then an opening credit, even just a little graphic, right?
3: Just, yeah. yeah. And that was just for that. But uh so it was you know, so sitting there and listening to Vince, I didn't take all of his advice. Sometimes he would feed me a line and it wouldn't fit because the moment had already passed. Right. And I did hear a couple of say it, say it's, but not like screaming and yelling. Mm-hmm. He was always really good. One time I man, I forget what a pay-per-view it was, but Sunny night heat, I think we were in Vancouver and places sold out, and I was fired up, shot out of a can, and I'm screaming right off the bat. And Vince, as soon as I finished, and whoever I was working with started, he goes, Take a breath and relax. It's an hour long show.
1: Yeah. And I was like,
3: Okay. right. So it was. But that's the type. So he has that reputation Mm -hmm. that we all know and read about. And but there is much more to the story.
2: But that was also kind of a transitional phase for the company. If you're talking about 95 leading into like the Monday Night Wars, which really started about 96, like you said, when Hall and Nash left. So what was it like in the company at the time? There were
3: having profit and provability meetings.
2: Profit and provability, prov- what does that mean? That means
3: we're losing money. Oh, wow. A lot of money, yeah. and we need to stop losing money. So how? anybody have any ideas? Mm. And it was, you know, sharpen pencils all the way down, turn off lights when you leave a room. Really? Yeah, it was tough. And it was the first year that they had a profit-sharing plan. The company wasn't public at this point. But since Vince and Linda owned it, they would do profit sharing with the employees, and 96 was the first year in a long time that they got zero because they lost six million dollars.
2: Wow. So there were no profits. I remember um, hearing at the time that they did a Madison Square Garden show, and they were excited because they hit like 100 grand. Yeah. Which at the garden, like you hit 100 grand like in frickin' Ithaca Yeah. on a Sunday afternoon. 100 grand at the garden, that's terrible, but at the time they were like excited. Yeah, business was starting to pick up uh after
3: I had started and cuz I started the so Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass June 23rd 96 I start June 24th okay. 96 I take credit for the whole adventure right? <laughs> you're welcome um but so those emails are starting to come out hey we had a great house in Pittsburgh 125,000 mm. and those numbers are starting to come up and Vince Russo said to me man, I don't know if they should be sending those out because those numbers go up and they come down. I doubt they'll be sending those emails if, right. if we don't keep doing good.
2: So uh, is that how it is when you're a commentator? You're kind of almost in the office as well to get those type of emails? Because the boys aren't getting those type right. of emails.
3: It was uh, after my first year, They want, Kevin Dunn never liked me mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason. <laughs> and uh, he wanted to let me go. So he calls Vince McMahon at his house and Vince Russo was there writing TV at the time with him uh, and they're on speaker. Um, okay, I'm going to Kevin Kelly's contract's up and we're going to let him go because I only had a one-year contract. Right. Okay, no problem. But wait, why? Uh, and Vince kind of looks down his glasses. So why, pal? And Kevin Dunn says, whatever. Vince Russo says, well, he's shown an interest in writing. Can I have him? Oh, yeah, you certainly can have him. Well, I got to go, guys. Thanks so much. Couldn't get off the phone fast enough. Really? So now I work for Vince Russo. Okay. Uh, just transitioned over to the office and started Helping with the magazines and helping with the yeah, AOL site and the WWF.com and it's bite infancy. this yeah bite do and bite this <laughs> later on, and then eventually they had the idea for the three-man team. So I got brought back to TV, but I still had my magazine responsibilities.
2: So you're actually writing for WWE magazine, yep, but not writing the shows, not writing
3: the shows. Mm-hmm. I was uh, just a creative guy on the magazine end. they gave me the title managing editor which i still have no idea what that is and, <laughs> looks and good
2: on a business card
3: <laughs> i wrote like you know so there would be a lot of material in the magazine that didn't have a, a byline they, that was me that was bill banks that was vince russo whomever right we were all just writing this stuff and um you know occasionally we chime in with vince russo and he'd be looking for a creative idea and a couple of us would throw some ideas around we went to lunch one day and he's like i'm stuck for a main event this so is right after austin wins the belt and I remembered Vince instead of – because they used to do a thing where the champion wins the belt at the pay-per-view in the Monday Night Raw after that. He would be there to present the title to the new champion, mm. symbolic.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, when Austin won, and he and I had done the interview before where I said, do you want Stone Cold Steve Austin to win, yes or no, I'm trying to put, pin him on the spot? He says, it's not just no, it's hell no. Austin wins. Vince comes down, and he's wearing the belt around his waist. Ah. So anyway, I said to Russo – I remember Vince wearing that belt around his waist when he came down to give it to Austin. If I'm Steve Austin, that's going to piss me off. So he had been talking about a corporate champion. You want a corporate champion, Vince? I think what you're saying is that you want to be the champion, that you think you're the corporate champion. So we'll do it this way, the easy way or the hard way. easy way is you face me tonight for the WWF championship. hard way is I come back there and I beat your ass right now. And so sure enough, the match is made. So I tell this to Russo, and he's like, that's crazy. But I'll pitch it. And he went upstairs to Vince's office and he pitched it. And that's what they did. So it
2: was a real open
3: submission kind of thing. There weren't a bunch of writers. It was
2: It's amazing how that's changed, hasn't it? Like, yeah. I started there in 99 in my big famous debut mm-hmm. promo, which I watch now. And it's like a, my opinion doesn't matter. But people say it's classic. I wrote the whole thing myself. Wow. No rehearsal. I went over it with Russo and Rock. But Vince didn't know. It's like now everything is so meticulously Detailed yeah. and 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 gone through the ringer and and approved and reapproved and rewritten wasn't the case back back no, in that time it was know. only 20 years ago
3: and your promo still holds up, right? Right, it, right. it still holds up today mm. and I think that again, you know is one of the things that is Lacking today in character development. Why aren't the guys connecting with the audience? Because it isn't them mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. you
3: know Miz is great because he takes the written word and he makes it Miz. Yeah, and it's him saying it. But the writers feel him and they know him. Somebody new coming out of the shoot, man. I don't know how if that if the case would have been the same. Here's Chris Jericho. People like him. They know him. They saw the
2: vignettes. What are we going to say about him?
3: Well, here, Chris. Here's your words.
2: Right. Wait. I wouldn't say that until you get that. I guess respect or that trust where you can change it on your own. Yeah, but that takes a long time. You know, most guys don't have that. So, like you said, read it. Uh, this is the way it's written. Don't deviate. This is approved. I used to get all the time. This is approved by Vince, and I'd be like, I haven't even read it yet. How <laughs> can I? it's not approved by me? Right. Well, we'll go through it. Like, no, this is not right. But other guys don't really have that uh, freedom. Yeah, and you know? and
3: that's where. And so I do a lot of camps around the country at wrestling schools and like seminars I do, and I do, stuff I do a lot or? of seminars. And I I emphasize sales. You're all in sales now. You hate salesmen, but guess what? You're a salesman. So be a good salesman Mm. and sell with emotion. Don't give them a bunch of words. Don't just give them stats and speeds and feeds. Give them emotion. Make them care. Connect with the audience. And that'll transition to what you do in the ring. Move less, sell more. Mm -hmm. And I say, listen, only in WWE is somebody going to hand you a piece of paper with your words on it. So everywhere else, you have to know you. Mm. And when you get there and you get good enough... You still have to know you so that you can say, you know what? I've gotten to a certain level here. I think I know me well enough to be able to tell writers or Vince or whomever. I wouldn't say it that way. Here's what I would say. Right, right, right. But you have to know you.
2: It's interesting. That's a a good way to put it. Yeah. You know, like you would say, no one knows better what your character is going to be other than the guy
0: himself. Right. So, hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Do you want a beautiful lawn?
2: I remember you doing a lot of like, am am I mistaken, like backstage interviews and stuff? That's what I mostly did. That's kind of what you moved into that position. Right, yeah. I I still did Heat,
3: I still did like syndicated shows, I did hundreds and hundreds of episodes of syndicated shows. But mostly was the backstage interview guy on the live Raw and the tape SmackDown.
2: So what did you see that kind of started changing the company's fortunes to start increasing and getting more popular and eventually beating WCW?
3: It was all started at the TV studio. The TV studio knew that the look and the feel of the show needed to change, and that's when the transition in 97 to Raw is War began. Different look, different feel, big stage, Titantron, et cetera, et cetera. And let's create an adversarial atmosphere where we know these guys in Atlanta are trying to put us out of business. Let's go to war with them. And so that's what they did. That was Dave Sahadi and Chris Chambers. and Man, Dave all, Sahadi, yeah. Yeah, all of them sort of leading that charge. And that was where it began. And then the talent roster started to turn over and more guys started to come in and things started ratings move at a glacial pace so it took a long time for the better program as we all felt to eventually get over but you know when mike tyson gets in the ring with steve austin that helped Mm -hmm. everything helped it was all incremental there was not one event that you can say well this was the turning point okay it was a gradual progression but it was staying with it Mm. it wasn't easy there were I think in 90, what was it, 96, 97, even though they had made the, it was 96, one of the things that led to the Raw's war, they were doing like, they had sent a crew to Kuwait, and they had some TV there, and it was terrible, and the ratings came out, it got like a 1.7, it was awful, and Vince had a meeting that he pulled a bunch of people, Pat and JR and Bruce and Cornette and Vince Russo, and was like, guys, we need a change, what are we going to do, we need something. And it was a bunch of non-answers. Russo told me this story, so I put that caveat on it, and he pulled out Raw Magazine and said, this is what we should do. We should have this kind of attitude, this, you know, break down the fourth wall, whatever, whatever. That's what
2: you were doing in the magazine at that point. Just shoot with the fans. We
3: had WWF Magazine, and we had Raw Magazine. WWF Magazine was still family-friendly, whatever, whatever. Raw Magazine was, this is the shoot. This is the real stuff. (laughs) And... Vince looked at it, and he was like, okay. And then started in, encouraging Russo to attend more of the meetings, and he was instrumental in putting forth a lot of those things. And then after a while, it was Vince and Ed Ferrara and Vince McMahon writing TV for Russo. Yeah, and, yeah. and that was when it really started to kind of take off. It was, you
2: know, good and bad. You watch back some of those shows now, and it's like, oh, God, what? Geez. It's so funny, though, the thing like magazines, like the most archaic of, of tools. Right which were so important at the time. Sure. You know, and now it's like, you think like a magazine, like, <laughs> wow. We got,
3: we got in trouble because at the time they were having like uh, Dory funk had camps, a funk and dojo yeah. and invited, you know, some indie guys and some guys that were, they were trying to figure out what to do creatively to work out with the uh, Dory and do a bunch of stuff. And Dr. Tom was there and we had put a write up about this. It's just a small one page thing. And it had a picture of Adam Copeland and, Uh, Sean Morley, and uh, I can't remember who else. Maybe Jay was there, but uh, Vince saw it while he was driving somewhere and calls up Vince Russo screaming, What the hell is this? I want this magazine pulled off the stands right now.
1: He flipped
3: his lid because he didn't want those guys to be seen as... Themselves, He wanted to wait until somebody we came up with creative ideas for them. Really? But all we were doing, we were just shooting with it. Hey, right. these guys were here. This was a factual news story. Here's what they did. It was a recap of the camp.
2: But for Vince to flip out on that says that there was probably a big circulation for the magazine at that point. There then.
3: was. But it, again, Vince would go back and forth between, yes, 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 this is what we need to do. We well, need to open, you know, and then all of a sudden... He
2: changes his mind. He has a, pen, a, a penchant for changing his mind. Right, yes, yeah. as, as he wants to do. As we know, it. right?
3: But so I go down the hall to the guy who was responsible for the press runs of the magazine. And I said, hey, we just got a call from Vince McMahon. He's really pissed off about Raw Magazine. What can we do about it? He says, it's already in circulation. <laughs> I said, can we pull it off the newsstands? No. Yeah. <laughs> How would we do that? No, it's already done. Okay. So we did nothing. And we didn't report back to Vince or anything. And it was forgotten about. You never asked about it again.
2: That's when you walk from newsstand to newsstand and just tear out that page. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Wait a minute. What are you doing? I'm running down the street. But that's,
2: once again, typical Vince. Like, the next day, probably didn't even think about it ever yeah. again. It's was, was always the rule. Like, if you ever have a match or something where Vince flips out on you, uh, take your medicine and then just never mention it again. The right. next day, don't say a word about it because he's, he's moved on. Yeah. You know?
3: What um, I wanted, always wanted to ask you, um, when you walked down the stairs at the Rosemont Horizon after you killed that first promo, what were you thinking? You killed that promo, and you come down the steps of the gorilla position right to the backstage area. Mm-hmm. And as you're walking down the steps,
2: did you think, like, you killed it? Were you happy with I it? I don't I don't remember. I remember, like, being super excited Beforehand, like when my name flashed on the Tron and everyone went nuts. Yeah. I was like, wow, Like people actually know who I am. Because you never know for sure. Yeah. Like, if, are people paying attention or do they even watch WCW? And if they did, did I make that type of a, a mark on them, an impression? So I remember before just the reaction I just thought was amazing. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, I don't really recall... Too much of a response or a pat on the back, which is quite typical. Right. But I remember this was in the infancy of the internet, and somewhere it was posted online, as you know, that where there's smoke, there's fire, mm-hmm. that Vince did not like the promo because he didn't like my facials. Mm. And he said they were too cartoonish. And when you watch it back, they were a little bit Popeye. And, of course, no one told me that. But reading it, I was like, how the hell do these, how do they find this shit out? And then I watch it back. I'm like, it's probably true because the, the, I know how Vince thinks and he's like, oh, look at this guy. He's a cartoon character. But he didn't know that stuff coming from WCW right. to WWE it was two different worlds. And I was just playing the same character that I played there, just trying to get some TV time and get right. some steam. But so that's what I remember the most was like maybe the next day reading that and like, ah. I guess he didn't like it.
3: It was a, uh, it was such a great thing. And I felt, cause, uh, when you had asked me to do this interview, and I'm really thankful for being able to be a part Thanks, of it, man, yeah. I was thinking back to that promo and the sense of pride that the guys at the TV studio really felt about that. How do you mean? The reaction that you got was validation for all the work that they had put in gotcha. on the countdown of the millennium. Gotcha. And that when their ideas came, again, they're uncredited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... That's the validation that they get, Right, is that when you come out and you get that response, they're like,
2: hell yes, mm. everything that we did was right. It's a great point, because David Sahadi and, then of course, Adam Panucci, yeah. and I don't know if we ever really discussed those names on any of my shows before, but they're the backstage guys that would make all the uh, intro clips, the right. vignettes. Um, you know, for me, like the break the walls down with the cityscape and the chick dancing and all that stuff. That's not just random, that's very meticulously put together. For me it was always Adam Panucci, but David Sahadi was very involved in that as well. Right. The whole team yeah. uh in the in that promos
3: department, David Sahadi, Chris Chambers. Chambers as well, yeah. Yeah, uh, Barry Bros, uh Doug Adam, all those guys. What's his name? Doug Lebeau. LeBeau. Yeah. But it was a it was just validation for them. And I I know how the T V studio cared so much. And the word Who's always ah they kind of look down their nose at wrestling no they don't mm. they appreciate it they come in from school or from sports and they may not know it but man they
2: glom onto it and they grow to love it well it's like you said i mean the production of wwe and even if you're not a wrestling fan it's better than nfl right in a lot of ways i mean it really is it's so slick and i think you take it for granted almost at watching let's say monday Night raw you see how it's produced and how it's done it's like dude no one else does that no. in, Kerwin in Silf- showbiz.
3: Kerwin Silfies has been the director. I don't think he's the director anymore, but <laughs> yeah, was the director for a thousand years. He's still years. there. Yeah. And he was responsible for lighting the crowd uh, in that certain way by using those cans mm. to come off the truss and to shoot beams of light onto the audience. That Interesting. Was not, that was not being done, but that has been copied now by everybody. Mm, right. Not, right, and right, not right. just in, in, in all sports, in basketball, in everything, and... Uh, that's one of those innovations that you know, came from wrestling. Mm-hmm. You know, the XFL with the sky. Cam. But just thinking
2: that, the camera that went over the field, yeah. that's totally XFL's right. idea. And, yeah,
3: And now that's... Reporters you know, in the locker room, yeah. that sort of stuff. There was always that type of thing. So yeah, WWE
2: does not get enough credit for the innovation. The production standpoint. Right. Talk about when you were a um, uh, backstage interviewer. What were some of your highlights of, of stuff that happened? Cause I seem to remember you did a lot of stuff with The Rock. A lot of stuff with yeah. The Rock. And what do you he call you, herma, herma, Hermy? Hermy, hermaphrodite? Yeah. How do you call you, hermaphrodite? That was a
3: Brian Gwerts' uh, idea. <laughs> Gawertz <laughs> pitched it to me, and the way he said it, it was like really condescending and shitty, and I I wanted to punch him. <laughs> um, but then when I talked with Rock about it, I said, "Listen, I'll do anything you want. You know, are you cool with this?" He says, "Yeah, we'll make it funny." I said, "Okay, as long as you're cool with it." He and I knew each other in Florida. Oh. Okay. Um, before he started in wrestling, he was still playing at the University of Miami, and I was ring announcing on a bunch of local shows down there, trying to get noticed, and I had the chance to work with uh, Cuban Assassin, who was booking this little show these run of shows in this one little town north of tampa and it, they let me sit in on the finish meeting so it's him and ned brady and uh me sitting there and, and he's like okay in the main event i think it was it was either cuban or ned against rocky johnson so when the time is right we'll hit the ring and bop ba boom boom dq okay and then rocky pops in oh yeah good time we were just talking about your match and he explains the finish and he says hey i got my kid here tonight Is it okay if he comes down and makes the save? Yeah, sure, whatever. Then match finished just the way they said. Here he comes in his number 94 University of Miami jersey, slides in the ring, Dwayne Johnson, throws those same signature punches that he did, (laughs) even though he hadn't started training yet, and father and son stand shoulder to shoulder and the heels retreat.
2: That's great. Yeah. What a story.
3: And I, I always would laugh with him. I'd be like, hey, listen, rock. I can make some calls if it's not working out here for you. Get us back in that flea market in Hudson. <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, man, that would be awesome. But we were always cool, so we knew each other. I did the inter- interviews with him when he first came up as Rocky Maivia. You know, we talked a lot of trash because I'm an FSU guy. I graduated from Florida State, and he's from Miami. So we was, always had a lot of What was
2: the hermaphrodite thing? Then why did he call you that?
3: Because they said I had equally working parts of uh, male and female genitalia. <laughs> I don't. The
2: (laughs) The textbook definition of a hermaphrodite. Yes,
3: that's what it is. (laughs) So um, I'm sure that that was written out of some sort of evil spite, but we turned it into fun. And my my idea was every time I'm going to put that microphone in front of the rock's face, I'm waiting for that validation. That was my motivation. Today's the day where I'm going to ask a great question. He's going to say, You're a hell of a reporter,
2: Kevin Kelly. And then he's going to tell us. <laughs> to- but, the, you know, the thing is funny is, like, once again, it's like back in the day, like, uh, you and Coachman were only, you know, you're part of the show, but you were characters on the show. Right. And now, you know, the, the backstage announcers, they're basically just nameless, faceless microphone yeah, holders. I know. Because you would see Hermy, and then Coachman would take shit all the time. And obviously, Coachman actually, was he actually in a business, the general manager, or the hell he did? But, right. what are some of the other memorable backstage interviews that you did? Oh, gosh.
3: Uh, did uh, a lot of stuff like with uh, Taker and Kane, and uh, you know, I did some off-site stuff. I interviewed you, you did know, well, you- sat- oh, yeah, a few times. And it was always, and Vince had a big thing about, you know, the announcer can't be taller than anybody else, so <laughs> everybody that I interviewed, everybody, I always took my yeah, shoes off. A tall guy. Yeah, I took my shoes off and I had the real wide leg spread. Mm-hmm. And I would try to be in the background as much as possible.
2: Yeah, yeah. They still have it now, the uh, Tom Phillips leg spread, where he's like, basically like, his balls are touching the ground, <laughs> his legs are spread so far. Um, <laughs> and,
3: and, you know, we did, uh, we just did a lot of cool stuff. And the the crew that would shoot the, these pre-tapes, you know, I would just try to make them laugh, try to make them, was this good? What'd you think? Oh, that was really good, you know, or eh, I don't know, maybe. Right, right. Um, But uh, they were all, when they were live, live, they were one take and that was it. So we always had a blast. Did you ever
2: have any uh, problems with the live?
3: No. The only thing I ever had problems with live was when I went to Pillman's house. Oh. I went blank. Okay. I got into the moment. So I, we got there early in the day. Is This when there
2: was an attack with the gun or something. Gun.
3: Steve came in his house. Steve was Steve had put Pillman on the shelf, right? And he was he was going to pursue him, mm-hmm. continue at his home. So Pillman pulls out a gun and says, "If he shows up, well, I got the answer." So Steve does show up. There's chaos outside. Lights go off. Bang bang. Jesus. Right. Commercial break. Then they go to me because now we have no light because the power's out, and I couldn't come up with the word gunshot. So I was stammering, stuttering for the word, and I said, explosions. Mm. So I was like, the only time I ever had problems in a live, I just blanked, I couldn't think mm. of the word. And so, the, of course, I go back to Stanford, and the boys in master control in the tape room, oh, they had their fun with that. They <laughs> had, they still, you know, me screaming, call the police, mm. call the police, and uh, the explosions. What yeah.
2: an angle for the time, though, even now, like you could never do that no. now.
3: No, we got in trouble. Oh, really? We got in trouble with USA. Oh no! With the network? Yeah, because we didn't smarten them up. Oh, they nice. didn't. We didn't tell them there's going to be a gun, so they were like, "What the hell?" Mm. And you know, oh, it was a starter's pistol. No, it wasn't. It was a Glock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, when we finished it, it was like, "Oh my God, we just did something amazing!" This was so fantastic. And then the next day, it was like, "Well, I didn't get in trouble, but you know,
2: the company Vince basically they yeah. got
3: they got chewed out a little but bit."
2: But there was a lot of those type of angles. I remember like there was some really cool stuff like with Sean. One Time where he got beat up and he was like thrown through the windshield of a car, it almost looked like he was dead. Yeah, and I was like, You could go in that direction. I was almost wondering, like, a character gets killed off on the show that's almost the direction it was going into, you know, like CSI or something like that, right. where you're a regular, like, you know, Game of Thrones, you're a regular, and then suddenly your character dies and you're gone, like something that had never been seen in wrestling before.
3: I think that that was we got in a lot of
2: trouble with the thing you did with China. remember? Really, her, remember when you had her. Uh, do tell? I kidnapped her. It was some, the kidnapper? Yeah. My, my just so the backstory was that she always wore gloves, and I was trying to think think of something to do with her because she wasn't great, but she tried and she was up for anything. And for whatever reason, Vince had his feuding for like three months. And mm-hmm. what do you do, girl versus guy? So I thought, well, what if I kidnap her? And Smash her fingers with a hammer right where she would have like her glove there and it'd be like filled with like a rag like Sausages in the finger things and I actually smashed her thumb with a hammer good lord bad person you (laughs) so tell me about that they uh, so
3: the next day it was a You know series of phone calls and emails not that but I heard about them after the fact and that USA was not happy with it. Violence towards women. Internationally, oh my gosh, Chris. International, Tommy Carlucci. Do you know, remember Tommy? Tommy, uh, heavyset Italian guy, been with the company for a thousand years. What did he do? I remember uh, the name? He's in charge of international production. Okay, yeah. And, and he and his wife, Michelle, both worked there. Um, anyway, poor Tommy would get these calls every week from Sky TV or whatever. About the show, and would have to re edit and re edit. Wow. Oh my gosh. And it was the worst for him. But that one, I remember with you in China was like way up there on the, ooh, we probably shouldn't have gone there list because we I agree. Trouble.
2: Think mm-hmm. about that, man. That's terrible. And I remember... Um, it was just a thumb. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, just a torture situation, yeah. you know? Because I remember like uh, I had an idea of, of how I would kidnap her and Vince was like, no, she'll just be in a room. Like, we don't need to see how you kidnapped her. You just have her in the room. I'm like, Okay. So I have her tied up like in a chair, <laughs> smashing her thumb with a hammer. That's terrible. You're a rotten guy. Oh, so rotten, man. So you're, rotten. Why?
3: What, are you having fun with all of this? You just look like you're on top Val? of the world right now. You just look like a, you're killing it with the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how do you do it? I asked Tanahashi, like, you know, do you ever get tired? And it's a rib, you know, and he
2: always says, I never get tired. Mm-hmm. Like. Where do you, how do you do this? Is it just like, cause it's amazing. It's just ingrained into your system. Like, you know, I started doing this when I was 19 years old, being on the roads. That's just what you do, you know? And then the more success you have, the more chances that you take. Which leads to more success in other places. And it kind of is very, like you talk about The Rock, I mean, once you start getting that confidence, you'll try anything. Yeah. And chances are it's going to work because you know what it takes to make it work. Yeah. You know, and working for Vince and getting that work ethic, because as you know, when you work in WWE, you're expected to basically be on call right? 24 7. I've been married to
3: my wife as long as I've been in the business. Yeah. And she does not still to this day. She kind of understands it. So 25, 26 years now no, honey, this is what we do. Yeah. This is our life. Yeah. And this is the life that we chose because when we were kids, we decided that we wanted to be in the circus. Mm-hmm. And so we we travel all over the world and we do no sleep and we just go. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. It, it's just great.
0: Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Do you want a beautiful lawn?
3: so, what led to you leaving WR getting dismissed? Well, the they called me into the office one day, and they said, uh, "Don't come back tomorrow." No, it was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was just budget cuts, oh. and they just started going department by department. Uh, the same day I got let go, like ten other people in you know, other departments got mm-hmm. let go—an mm-hmm. accountant and an HR person—and. It was just a numbers game. It's a big,
2: giant corporation with
3: hundreds of employees. Right. And like any corporation, it just happens. It just happens. Yeah. And there were no bitter feelings. They gave me a nice severance package Mm -hmm. on my way out the door. And we parted well. And that was it.
2: But it's interesting. So we're talking, you mentioned Tanahashi because we're here in Tokyo talking about New Japan. And now you're the commentator here for New Japan World with Don Callis. But before that, it was with Steve Carino. Steve Carino. First of all. Talk about how this company is growing, New Japan, wow. and it's exciting to be a part of it because you can see the buzz and you can see that momentum moving not just in this country but around the world. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh,
3: when I started, October 2015, the uh, King of Pro Wrestling event, and for New, Japan world, for New Japan World, that was like the early days of the streaming service. Yes. Yeah, they had just started. Let's have English commentary as well. Okay, great. Uh, Matt Stryker and I did that show, and then they brought Karina on, uh, starting in 2016. How did you
2: get the gig with New Japan?
3: Through ROH. Oh, because you doing a Ring of Honor. Gotcha. Yeah, and, and the partnership with Ring of Honor in New Japan. And, and mm. uh, that was how they brought me in. But the house was full, almost full, but wasn't quite sold out. And we go to Tokyo Dome and the house is good, but it's got some room for improvement. You can see it. Everything's trending up. And now we're on the doorstep of, what, over 40,000 paid.
2: It's possible to get there. It could be the biggest Tokyo Dome crowd in like the last 15 years from what I've when heard. They,
3: when Ghetto started in 2007, mm-hmm. paid crowd was listed at 8,000. For the Tokyo Dome? For the Tokyo Dome. You're kidding me. Oh, for Wrestle Kingdom. Really? Yeah. Because that, that was the first one, two thousand yeah. eight 8,000 paid. And mm-hmm. then uh, the reported number last year is 26. Mm-hmm. So from 8 to 26 yeah. in... 10 years last year the floor didn't sell out until December this year the floor sold out in October hmm. so everything's kind of two. what why is that do you think um because Naito has connected with the audience and the, the LIJ thing has taken off and they have a pillar of four on the top which is unprecedented um what how do you mean like meaning the top four now are- is is Okada Tanahashi Naito and Omega right and that's the dream scenario for any booker you want that. And, you know, I liken it to having The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Randy Savage, and Ric Flair, like all in their
2: prime. Mm-hmm.
3: And you just, you know, when you throw Hulk Hogan in that mix, when you throw Randy Savage in that mix, The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, nobody ever had that before in their prime. But that's what New Japan has. Mm-hmm. And everybody underneath is clicking as well. And everything is just smart. Booking smart. It's easy. It's easy to digest and understand. Um, they've de-emphasized a lot of uh, the villainry other than Suzuki-gun. So Chaos used to be this really nefarious faction, but now everybody plays it pretty straight. Mm-hmm. They bend the rules, but they don't mm-hmm. necessarily break them, and they don't try to get a lot of heat. That's why when, when you came in, mm-hmm. whoa, <laughs> mm-hmm. hey, man, right. this is different mm-hmm. and shocking. But out of that, they built a lot of stars, and the departures of AJ and... Nakamura and Gallows and Anderson didn't hurt because there were there was a bench and there were people ready to step Well Thankfully
2: off. it was because that's a big group of guys yeah, to lose. right? You Because know, people don't realize maybe if they don't watch New Japan, like even Gallows and Anderson were a big part of New Japan as the foreign right. guys. and all, Along with, of course, AJ and Shinsuke. <laughs> You know it was a big deal t- for those guys to go right so but again it
3: was I thought about it like when Brett left WWE it was not going to be the end of the world like everybody predicted mm-hmm. that there would be people to step up and mm-hmm. business eventually did go up you're
2: forced to find someone right. to step up right and that's mm-hmm. that's what happened. so but had Brett not left Austin might have not have grown to where he did absolutely right not. Yeah. and if AJ hadn't left
3: Omega wouldn't be where Great he was. Point. He yeah. wouldn't have had the 2017 that he did. Right, right, right. So, uh, yeah, it's just wonderful to be able to see there and to be able to do it with Don and to bring forth, you know, because we're rooted in professional wrestling. That's what we do. That's what we are. And we call the, the shows in sort of an old school way, but we put a new school spin on everything that we do. And I try to be very factually driven, make sure that I'm telling these guys stories because there's always new people tuning in and the audience just continues to grow.
2: It's interesting how you said that you uh, learned from Jim, from JR about making the match before they even step into the ring or as they're circling in the Mm -hmm. ring. But that's two, for example, in WWE, that's two Americans. Here you are with two Japanese, but you have to sell that to an American audience. Is there something different that you have to do for that?
3: I try to liken it. I try to keep it the same. Mm -hmm. I try not to differentiate because it's not, because there is no language barrier with wrestling. It's Mm -hmm. universal. And while I may not understand what they're saying in post-match promos, uh, I I can understand the emotion. I understand why uh, Hiroki Goto is pursuing Minoru Suzuki and why Suzuki is blowing him off and why Goto is pushed to the point where he'll even put up his own hair Mm -hmm. to get another match with Suzuki. Um, So all of that just comes through the body language the facial expressions and everything. I, I get it, and I just try to translate it as best I can to the guy. Here's what happened, here's what's brought us to the now, and we'll see what happens when these two collide.
2: When you first came to Japan you, for, for New Japan, had you been here before? I had not. So how's that for you as a culture shock? Because you spent a lot of time here now.
3: Yeah, it's it was, uh, it was great. As soon as I got here, I loved it.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt very comfortable,
3: very relaxed. They treat us first class. And just enjoying Japan mm-hmm. and the society. Uh, I wish America was more like Japan because everybody is so nice and polite mm-hmm. and there's courtesy. Um, but it, I realized after the first show that I didn't know what I didn't know until I knew I didn't know it. And <laughs> I was out there live and it's like, ooh, I'm not doing a very good job. So I really needed to dig in and know and learn, commit to memory, the history of everybody in the ring and their backstory and the company's backstory and being able to recite that. Mm. Uh, you know chapter and verse no matter when so if somebody grabs a side headlock and they get shoved off from the ropes i've got time for one line before the tackle mm. and i can chime in the fact that you know nagata represented the country of japan in the world championships as he hits the tackle mm. and so and so was you know uh, Kitamura was 120 pound uh, 120 kilogram champion from the all japan championships whatever so whatever their backstory is try to find those lines but i needed to know them so i'm not reading off of paper Mm. i just had to be able to recite it
2: another thing too when you're talking or we talked earlier about how if you have to you know read something off of a piece of paper as a talent Mm -hmm. uh, and vince being in your ear as a commentator a lot of the commentating is the same the one thing i noticed for for you and don just watching the angle back from fukuoka where i attacked omega there's a lot of excitement right and it's not yelling, but I can hear Vince going, don't yell. But meanwhile, you watch any sport, any football. saw go. Right. He's going overtime. What a goal! Vince doesn't like that, but it's real emotion.
3: It's the way that the people at home are reacting, and I'm the voice right. of the people. I mean, right. we're, we're the chorus in the Greek tragedy. <laughs> That's what we are. So there's times where we yell, and there's times where we're quiet, and all of those range of, of movement. If we're screaming the entire time, then it's no good. Right. Sure. Can't be at a 10 the whole time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we try to meter and pace ourselves. But yeah, like I get caught up in the in the moment mm-hmm. and I may not if WWE called, you know, whatever. I, <laughs> they might not want me doing that. But right. it would be uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Do you get
2: any instruction at all from from Gator or the television people
3: or None from the television people at all. Mm-hmm. Occasionally I'll go to Gato and I'll just ask, you know, hey, is there anything and most of the time no. Mm-hmm. So, we produce ourselves. Nobody tells us when to start, nobody tells us when to finish, but I have watched, but the shows are produced the same way every time, so I know when we should start, Mm -hmm. and I know when we should finish, and I know as they get through the curtain, that music is gonna drop out, and that's where we need to wrap up our thought. And then there's a little bit of quiet, and then the next music starts, and here we go. They threw me a curveball a couple of shows ago. The shows usually begin with, Ozaki reading the list of matches that fans are going to see. Is he the that ring name. announcer? He's the ring announcer. So Ozaki is not standing in the ring. And I'm thinking, is he going to do it on the floor? Nope. Music starts. Here we go.
2: Oh, uh, <laughs> welcome. Yeah. We're live, pal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we just reacted to it. It's so interesting because the company is so huge. But even the other day, like I was watching the show backstage and I was hiding in Fukuoka mm-hmm. and Gato was in there. And we're watching uh, Marty Skrull's match, whatever he was with. I think Cody and whoever else he was in there with. And he threw powder yep. in his guy's face and then rolled him up. And Gator's like, oh, powder. Whoa. I said, you didn't know that? He goes, no, I just said roll up. I'm like, so no one told you that he's throwing powder? He's like, no, like that would never happen in WWE. Right. Because you have to like, know every little bit. But so as big as this company is, it's still pretty, like, Very loose and wide open as to what you're doing, you know? Go be creative, man. Go do your thing. And that's that's the the why.
3: That's the secret sauce. Mm -hmm. Just go and create and do. These Mm -hmm. guys are paid a lot of money to come over here and do their thing. Right. And there's a trust factor. We've picked you because we know you're good enough to do it Mm -hmm. on this level. And so many guys go, oh, my God, I'm going to Japan. What do I do? Man, just do you. Yeah. They've picked you. They want you to come be you. Right. Don't try to be something else now. Well, I I need to throw other stuff in. No, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> Stop.
2: Is it weird for you that also, so it's New Japan World, the streaming service. Then there's also Access TV. Right. That has a completely different, like Jim Ross is the commentator yes. there. Is that kind of strange? Like it seems that these guys should do both. Well, yeah, it would make sense, but yeah. that's not the direction that they want to gotcha. go. Gotcha.
3: They, the, uh, and I've talked with Access about it. They feel that. By having Jim and Josh Barnett that it's great for the casual fan who's tuning in because they know Jim Everyone Ross, knows Jim Ross yeah. and Josh Barnett has the MMA crowd mm. so therefore that's the reason why that team works best for them so what they do is what they do and what Don and I do we always say the only way you can see these events live is through New Japan World but by all means please tune in every week to access mm-hmm. to see if you didn't get a chance to see it live or to see something you might miss uh, but i always encourage everybody cuz they're
2: really trying to build the streaming service so like even for you know the alpha versus omega idea i was pitching like dude you guys got to do a pay-per-view for this this is worldwide and like right. nope has to be streaming only streaming only streaming only streaming only. do you think they have not a chance. But do you think it's possible that the streaming service will get to the point where there's hundreds of thousands of people watching New Japan
3: live? I, absolutely, I, I I believe so because it's the way television is moving. Hmm. Uh, you know, with cord cutting and with everything like this, just people now are getting into uh, these streaming services. I think I think New Japan World needs to step up on the technology end. They're mm-hmm. a little bit behind. Mm-hmm. It's only available on Amazon Fire Stick. It's not available on Roku. It's not available. It's not available. Man, they need to get there. Mm-hmm. And once they do, once it's available to everybody on every device that they have, then I think it's going to be, you know, the growth is just mm-hmm. there. The more live that we can do, the more events that we can cover. We should, I, I said I want to do every G1 show last next year. Hmm. I want to do all 19 of them. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Be there for all of them. We came in, we did the beginning, the first four, and the last three. Hmm. Well, it's those 12 in the middle to where that's where I I worry that we lose the audience. Hmm. But we need to do every show live. And I don't know if technologically or budgetarily whether they're there yet, but that's what I've pitched.
2: First, you mentioned that it's you and Stryker, and then it's you and Carino, and then it's you and Don Callis how is that for you like to me it would almost like being in a band and and you're a guitar player and you lose one guitar player and get another one in then like is there some chemistry that you have to work with or do you have any say in who's coming in do they just hire somebody Go here he is kevin
3: Yeah, uh, it's it's you know i was glad that we you know when it was strike or not it was fine we knew each other when i work with somebody that i don't know it's a little difficult but then you get to know them you have no um, choice. Yeah. yeah, and Stryker, I've known for many years. Carino and I did every week on Ring of Honor, so we had our act down pat. Don and I were friends going way back when he was in WWF together, and we had done a couple of shows together for Scott DeMore oh, way back when.
1: Oh,
2: okay.
3: I knew that when, because Tiger called me, Hattori called me and said, hey, uh, Carino leaving, so we're going to go with Don Callis. Sure. I said, oh, great, great. He and I worked together before. It easy, no problem. And I knew when we worked together on those shows, we would be a good team. Uh, and this was 2004, I think it was, or 2003. And sure enough, Don was able to pick it all up. You know, a little learning curve for him of course, to kind of
2: get... Of course, to learn the whole situation. Figuring out what he's watching. Who's around, yeah. Yeah,
3: but, uh, you know, he's he's gotten it. And now I think we're... You know, I take pride in the fact that people say we're the best, you know, oh, we're the best team in wrestling. That, that makes me feel good. Mm-hmm and all I care about is that I have the respect of the boys mm. and that they know that I'm, I'm there for them. Mm-hmm. I'm not there for me. I, I don't have a bunch of T-shirts up on Pro Wrestling <laughs> Keys. I'm not a catchphrase <laughs> guy. I'm there to get their catchphrases over, to sell right. their T-shirts because the more money that they make, I know I'll always have a
2: mm-hmm. job. Do you go and talk to everybody before? Is, do you have anything for me? Do you guys I come to you? I
3: totally do that, yes. Mm. Uh, even the Japanese, I, I go to them. Please, anything, uh, tell me and like Koda bushi he was he and Kushida were the tag with yeah, this girl and, right. and uh, cody Koda gave me some you know some things that i used on the air and i try to do that with everybody i think it's it's vitally you important.
2: have to work with your announcers you know and your referee and your cameraman it's a big team out there and a lot of guys don't realize that and the best guys do right like it's not just me versus you know kenny i need you and don on board i need the cameraman to know what's going to happen i need the referee to know where to be all of it is working together to create this great show. Exactly. You know, right.
3: the Japanese announcers are not smartened up to anything. Really? They don't know anything. They stay in their room and that's it, and they call what they see. Hmm. I'm ahead of them because I know what's to come. A lot. Do of
2: you times. like that, knowing what's to come? Heck yeah. Because I know Jim Ross. Says sometimes he doesn't like even knowing what the finish is. He might just be working it too. Who yeah. knows with him, right? Give but- me a break.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, if if I don't know the finish, that's fine. I don't All care. Right. But if there is something crucial in the match that you want me to get over. Please tell me. Chances are, I'll see it and I'll pick it up anyway. But let, why leave it to chance? You're telling a story. Yeah. Here's the story. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna foreshadow something that might come later, mm-hmm. and then the audience at home goes, "Oh, yes, he told us that was coming." You know, I like to leave clues if if possible, mm-hmm. and then it helps with the narrative.
2: What was the biggest culture shock for you when you first came over here?
3: Oh gosh, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was uh, the uh, you know they don't serve drinks like when you eat. And that's like, I'm a big, uh, you know, hey, free refills for Coke? Yeah, yeah. Okay, great, <laughs> let me get another diet. Oh, wait, no Diet Coke? Oh, Coke Zero. <laughs> um, you know, and the whole driving on the wrong side of the road, I remember like being on the bus from the airport the first time. And that was just weird. Mm. Uh, I had never been to the UK. I had never been. Mm. I had only traveled to Canada, Puerto Rico, and all over the United States. Hmm. So seeing that and being in a vehicle that where the driver's on the wrong side of the road was like weird. And then I go out to dinner with somebody and I sit in the front seat where the driver's wheel, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I'm like, "What's going on?" How about the taxi drivers with the white gloves? Oh, I like that. So amazing.
2: Look like chauffeurs. Yeah. And, and
3: just walking around, it's going. There's no garbage cans, but everything is so clean. How do they do this? Uh, <laughs> little point. stuff. Little yeah. stuff. But now, just having gotten into it, learning some of you know, learning more about the history of Japan going on castle tours with war machine and and ray Rowe is such a big uh, history buff that like he knows why this castle was built the way it was in the ninth century it's just so Mm -hmm. cool it's so so different
2: yeah i mean it it is a whole different world over here but it's still very americanized but when you get into the real japan it's pretty cool you go
3: yeah you go to some of these country towns and yeah it's it's wait what (laughs) <laughs> but Tokyo is like New York.
2: Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, completely. Very Americanized. Yeah. Don
3: and I went when we were in Sapporo last year, we were in Hokkaido for the uh, January show. So it was Don's first time. We went out to eat afterward and we're trying to find, OK, where can we go? Oh, there is a place across the street. It has two American names. They made no sense together. <laughs> Contextually, it didn't work. But let's go in there. They probably serve food. We walk in and they go, uh, Japanese only. Oh, no problem. No, no. Japanese only. Waving to pointing at us. Wow. Get out. Okay. And there was an old guy sitting at the door. We didn't see him on the way in. Spoke perfect English. You need a ride? You need to go somewhere? No, no, we're fine. We'll walk. <laughs> what the hell was that? Uh, but the, the boys said, Yeah, sometimes you go to different places. It's
2: very ra- racist, is what that's racism. It is. Racism. You know, it's like we would go to places and there'd be sign on the wall, like it's a, a buffet. And it, it hap- used to happen all the time no wrestlers or sumo allowed. Wow. And because they just won't let you in, so like, are you wrestling? No, dame. Dame is like strong. No, like absolutely not. It's like mm-hmm. you can't do that. Right? Well, yes, you can. Japanese only. And you're yeah. like, really? Is that what it is? So, but other than that, they've been just yeah, great. Do you? Is it hard not to be working in the states? Just have completely working over here? Or do you? You're fine with that now?
3: I, I'm fine with it. I'm doing. Because uh, you, know, you left Ring of Honor
2: on your own accord, right? I did, yeah, I did
3: uh, back in June, and it was it was just time, you mm-hmm. know, because t- schedules. I couldn't make a match up, but. Um, I do a little bit of stuff here and there. Like, I really i have been doing like camps with the Monster Factory in New Jersey and uh with Mercury Pro Wrestling, but I've had a chance to do some shows like in Quebec City and uh, I just did Wrestlecade, which was a lot do? of fun. Uh, in Quebec, I, I did a camp where I talked to all native French speakers about doing promos, <laughs> just, but it, again, it worked, yeah, because it was about. Facial expressions right. and no words. Right. And don't speak. Mm-hmm. Say nothing, but mm-hmm. make me feel. And uh, you know, WrestleCade was fun because I saw a lot of old friends and you know, called three days worth of matches. Mm-hmm. But I've been doing a little bit of stuff here and there. But by and large, it's mostly been coaching at different seminars and
2: then uh, and then traveling, traveling over here. Over. Last couple of questions. Um, what was your favorite thing that you did in WWE? Is there a certain interview that you had, or a moment, or a match that you saw, or it, getting to chase? The Undertaker and Kane,
3: because I pitched the idea. Uh, Jason, how the Undertaker or Kane and Paul Bearer said that they were going to dig up their dead parents and bring them to the arena. So I go to the grave site and the Undertaker is there and I interview him and he grabs me, shoves me down, and then goes and realizes that the burial plots are empty. And we haul ass back to the building, and by then now Kane and Paul Bearer have brought these caskets out and they open them and there's mice running through them and these skeletons. It was so hokey. <laughs> but that was one of my ideas. And then when uh, Stephanie and Triple H got married, because I pitched that. Really? Yeah, just again, the I wrote, my wife and I were talking, we're big soap opera buffs. And we came up with the idea together that Triple H uh, should somehow con Stephanie into marrying him. So I write this whole big email up and I send it in and I send it to Vince and to Shane and Stephanie and Kevin Dunn and Jim Ross and... Vince was the first one to respond like five minutes later and all caps. That's great shit.
1: <laughs>
3: um, and Shane comes down the hall and he pokes the head of my office. He goes, dude, that's sick. I love it. And that's, they changed
2: it to f- drugged her or something. Yeah, or yeah Vegas. Yeah. yeah,
3: it was the, But the idea was that he was going to be the one to uh, be married to mm-hmm. uh, instead of for test. Um, Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was always fun. And just anytime I got to do anything and to see another memory, too, and I talk about the production staff and WWF all the time. So we go to the Houston Astrodome, 70,000 people. And yeah, WrestleMania
2: 17. Yeah,
3: the was truck was. was inside the dome. It was that big. And two of the people that worked in the truck, Kasama, mm-hmm. you may remember Kasama Vasatiti, and Ann Clampett, who's not there anymore, they came out and they stood and they on the steps of the truck and they looked out to all the people and they were like arm in arm, they were so excited that they were a part of this. Like I remember that and never will forget mm-hmm. that even these you know w- young women who probably never would have dreamed that they would work in wrestling would yeah. be here in front of 70,000 people yeah. and were playing an
2: instrumental role yeah, in everything. part can yeah. Yeah. happen, yeah. Uh, l- last question, as far as uh, New Japan goes, who are, who are the best performers in the company? You mentioned them the top four, but mm-hmm. who are your favorites to call?
3: Well, I've, I've enjoyed seeing Evil and Sonata take the next step. I think Sonata has every athletic tool that a wrestler could want and then some, and it's just a question of seeing him break out. Evil is already getting there. I think they're great. I'm such a fan of Juice Robinson. Mm. I think he's got a tremendous ceiling, and... When you get to see uh, Tomohiro Ishii get come out there as the stone pit bull and look just miserable, and then when he's in a lot of trouble, oh man, I feel it, mm-hmm. and it's just wonderful. And, and from the rise of the Young Lions, the kids that are on their way up, and to see how hard they work and to how much effort they put into their little spot they get and their opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I take something from every show and i'm i smile but just to to see cody and what he's doing you know and and the appreciation that Roof, he has so much yeah, yeah just, it's amazing say, to incredible see him. Uh, it,
2: do you um think that this product can make that mainstream jump into the states oh the i absolutely
3: boy? i absolutely think because the things that we talked about with wwe are the reasons why there is a vast audience that is available to new japan it's not that wwe is doing anything wrong they're making more money than ever before and that's their business model so it's working for them but there are a bunch of people who are not watching what? Mm-hmm. You know, the 7 million people. Mark Madden and I talk about the 7 million people that used to watch on Monday nights. Where did they go? Where did they go? Yeah. Were they taken in a rapture? Was <laughs> it an alien abduction? Yeah. No, they're there. They're just not being talked to. Mm-hmm. And I think that the New Japan product, the way it's constructed now, speaks to everybody. Mm. And I know there's a vast audience out there that all they need to do is see it once. And they're going to be hooked. Mm. And that's what we're trying to do. We're building a legion of fans, one fan at a time. And I'm doing a lot of outreach, and I I love talking with folks on social media, and all the people that have been fans of New Japan for years and years and years, that now are seeing the product rise again. Because business was so bad, Mm -hmm. it looked like it was gonna go out of business for a while. And now this renaissance has just been remarkable. But to be able to be a part of this in my small way has just been,
2: it's one of the greatest joys of my life. Mm Well, man, it's it's good to, to see you here and it's uh, cool to hear you and Don do your thing and uh, you've come a long way from Hermy. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> How do you say Hermy in Japanese? Uh, Hermie-san. <laughs> All right, thanks to Kevin Kelly. Hermy. I love that story. He's tearing it up as an announcer at New Japan Pro Wrestling. You can follow him on Twitter at RealKevinKelly and hear him on New Japan World uh, every single uh, week, basically. Thanks to everyone who came to rock with Fozzie in New Zealand and Australia. What a great tour it was. Great to reestablish ourselves in the market after five long years. I promise Australia we won't be, uh, it won't be five years before we come back again. I'll tell you that right now. So, great shows. Um, uh, Melbourne was amazing. Auckland was crazy too. Great, great uh, country over there. Uh, Speaking of great countries, heading to the homeland for the last leg of the Judas Rising Tour. We started in May 2017. Here we are going to finish off December of 2018 and we start in Moncton at the Casino New Brunswick on November 21st. November 23rd, halifax at the Cunard center 24th quebec city at center of videotron 25th montreal at mtlis uh, and the 26th arm prior ontario at the saint john that is sold out uh, thank you for that london ontario at the london music hall on the 27th of november toronto returning to toronto uh, november 28th at the rock pile come check that out november 30th thunder bay at crocs Winnipeg, hometown show at the Burton Cummings Theater on December 1st. December 2nd, Regina at the Exchange. That's sold out. It's going to be a great show. Uh, The third uh, in Edmonton at the Starlight Room. And the fourth, Calgary, Alberta at the Gateway. The final show of the Judas Rising Tour and what a tour it's been. Fozzyrock.com for all ticket information and how to get tickets for Fozzy's legendary VIP meet and greets. We do everything. We meet you, we greet you, we hang out with you. We do a private concert just for you last night uh, in Adelaide. We did Judas, Drink With Jesus, To Kill a Stranger, Free Will Burning, and Cold Gin. That's just a sample of what you're going to hear. Some songs that you're not going to hear anywhere else except for a VIP. So come check it out. Hang out with us. Go to Rock on uh, Instagram and check out our story you'll see it every night how much fun we have at VIP FuzzyRock.com come see us Canada it's going to be a blast uh, speaking of blast like I said coming up on Friday the best worst Survivor Series preview ever Jack Slade returns to go match by match with the card a changing card lots of stuff happening just uh, basically over the last couple of nights so it's going to be a must here if you want to, uh, to to check out Survivor Series this will be a preview to take you through it then you can go to www.network.com slash Jericho, and watch Survivor Series for free. All right. Have a good time all the time. We'll see you on Friday. Be cool. Stay hard. Stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs, and the be. good boy.